you, God, for your loving kindness toward us. Hallelujah. We serve a good God. Amen. Amen. Come on and give God a hand of praise. He is worthy. Amen. If you would open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, we are in chapter 1. The book of Ephesians chapter 1, and we will start reading in verse 15. When you got it, say so. And the word of the Lord says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your gracious, loving kindness. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence that is in this place. And God, just for the privilege that we have to worship and to adore your glorious and wonderful name, God. And this morning, Lord, my prayer is that as we continue on in this series, that you would continue to illuminate our hearts, Lord God, that you would continue to call us higher in you, Lord God. I pray that you bring change to our lives and transform us for your name's sake, my God, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word who walk worthy of the calling that we have in you, Christ Jesus. We thank you for this and we submit these things and ask this all in Jesus' good name. And someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so really quickly, if you do not have an outline, please raise your hand. We want to make sure that you have an outline. If you don't have an outline, it's important that you get one. I see a couple of hands. Keep those hands up. Keep your hands up if you don't have an outline. I want to make sure that you get one. It's important that you have an outline because we participate in our life groups. And even if you're not in a life group, which we highly encourage that you become part of one, we want to make sure that you're able to follow along with the sermon, that you're able to take notes, and that you can refer back to these scriptures. But if you are in a life group, then it is good for you to have that because we discuss these sermons. We, we, we go over them, and that way you can ask questions, get questions answered. And if you're not in a life group, Pastor Chad, is he around here? He's right there by the back door. You can see him afterward, and he will hook you up and help you get into a life group. And so we're going to start. We're going to continue on in our 
our series here. So looking down at your outline on the inside, you can follow along with me for the first few points. And then after that, you go ahead and you'll be able to take notes and write down some big ideas that we have within this sermon series. So as we continue in our study in the book of Ephesians, one point that I didn't fully make in the last message that is of the utmost importance is that everything God does, he does for his glory. Someone say amen to that, please. Every single thing that God does, he does for his glory. There's a couple of verses I want you to look at um, early on in chapter 1. Look at verse 6 here. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And so the first part that we talked about last week, just by way of remember uh, of remembrance there, is a reminder, is that we know that God the Father predestined us to become his children. He predestined us to adoption. And the reason why he does this is not because of anything that we have done, but it is simply for the praise of his glory. If you look at verse 12, you'll also see there, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so the first part we talked about was the Father's will, right? The Father's plan, that he's the source of all of our blessing. He does this for his glory. And then Jesus being the one who secures us, he also does this what? So that we can become the praise of his glory. And the last verse that we'll look at from last week that we went over is verse 14. And this is speaking of the Holy Spirit's work. And it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so the second thing you have there in your outline is the natural result of being enlightened to the truth of the indicatives of the gospel, meaning what Jesus has done, what God declares has been done, is that we is that we be overwhelmed by the glorious grace of God, seen in verse 6, that our life is transformed and being transformed to the praise of his glory, and in verse 14, and, that, and a gratefulness that is evidenced by our praise of his glory. And so the first thing is this, is that we should be overwhelmed by the realities of what we're learning in these scriptures, and then our lives should reflect that. It shouldn't just be that we're, wow, that's really awesome, but our lives should say, wow, that's really awesome. We should live out that truth. And so today, we will look at the first of two prayers that the Apostle Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus. These prayers can show us many things, but we will focus on two things for this point here. And one is that it is not a bad idea to pray these prayers for yourselves and for others believers. So whenever we think about, well, I don't know what to pray. Listen, just go ahead and repeat this. You can recite this, memorize this. I mean, you don't have to be long with it. I mean, you can just go ahead and say, God, this is what the apostle Paul prayed for the church. So I will pray this as well. I think that's a good idea, right? The second thing that I think is so powerful that is within here is that we can know clearly what the will of God is because I believe that the apostle was praying in accordance with the will of God for the church. And so we can see something that we can pray. One thing that I thought was interesting, and the reason why I found this interesting, and I have to share this this with you is because in the original Greek, this actually, these verses um, that we're going through here, this prayer is actually a run-on sentence. Now, the reason why I share that is because you guys know that I am the master of run-on sentences, amen? And I just wanted you to know that just like the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures run-on sentences, that's just me too, amen? I'm just saying, I just wanted to throw that out there, right? But all, all seriousness, this is a run-on sentence, right? It's, a, it's something that's just continual and, and, and it just flows through. It's, a, it's an inspiration that is occurring for us, right? Pastor, I, I can't get a pass, bro. You're just shaking your head, no, I can't get a pass. Validation, it's good, bro. That's, that, that's a good thing, man. All right. So, amen, amen. So, if we, if we look at these scriptures, this prayer for us, we're going to break it down into three parts here. So, the first thing I ask you to repeat this after me, say, we must recognize the heart of this prayer. 
The first thing is we must recognize the heart of this prayer. And we'll look at verses 15 to 17, read that, we'll break that down, and then we'll move on to the next part. And so the first thing is this, therefore I also, verse 15, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So let me pause for a moment because he's, he's speaking something to them, something to them that I think is of the utmost importance for us. And one of the things that is very indicative of us becoming believers and of us really experiencing saving faith is what? It is love for the people of God. It is love for one another. I was encouraged this morning because as Minister Juan was praying, he was praying for what? That we would continue to understand the love of God, that we would grow in the love of God, not just in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And, and, and I don't think that you disconnect the two. As we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is, really knowing him, then, all, then automatically we begin to love more, and that love begins to overflow into other people's lives. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I had an issue loving. There was a problem in my heart. I didn't know how to forgive. I I didn't know how to do those things. And so when I first came to Jesus, as I was getting to know him, I recognized that there was a deficiency in my life. And so what did I do? I began to meditate and memorize scriptures that dealt with love. For what? So that way I would be renewed in my mind, that I would be renewed in my heart, and I would be able to love the way that God calls me to love. And so the first thing Paul does is that he gives thanks. He gives thanks for these people. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. So another point, you should thank God for your brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. Rub your neighbor, just, just, just bump your neighbor like that and say, thank, I thank God for you. Come on, come on, say it like you mean it. Like not, I mean, you know, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse, you know, you should have been like, I thank God for you. I'm just saying, right? That should have come out. You were like, I thank God for you. No, man, come on now. Let's wake up, you know, it's still early, glory to God, but I'm just saying, right, you know, I mean, I thank God for you, so he thanks God, he does not cease, he does not cease, glory to God, to thank God for these saints that are there, and he says this, I don't cease to give thanks, making mention of you in my prayers, and so his prayer doesn't end in just thanking God for them, right, it doesn't just end in saying, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, but he also goes on to ask God some things for him, so he makes mention of them in my prayers, in verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. This prayer is rooted in one thing, and that is the greatest need that each of us has, and that is to know God. Say, know God. The heart of this prayer, in one translation, it literally says that. It says that you would know God. And so in, my, in, in, in the New King James Version that I read, it says what? That we would have the spirit of wisdom. And we know that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Amen? Okay? And the revelation in the knowledge of him. Epignosis in the Greek, it means a precise and accurate knowledge of him. And so it wasn't that they didn't have knowledge of him yet. It was that they had not fully understood the fullness of who God is. And so here's the thing that we have to ask ourselves this question. It may seem irrelevant, like, well, well, you know, Paul was praying for new believers. Y'all remember last week, I, I think I told you this, but Ephesus was one of the most blessed churches that I consider because apart from having Jesus being your pastor directly, like the disciples did for three years, this church in the book of Acts, Paul literally stood there with them for three years, exhorting them day and night with tears running down his face. Do you think that they had some great revelation? I would say yes. They had some great teaching. They had some good knowledge, some facts 
intellectual stuff that was going on. And yet he prays for them. He's praying for them that they would have this epignosis, that they would have this precise and accurate knowledge of God. And so for all of us that are in this place, we all need to know God better. Amen? We all need to grow in the knowledge of who God is. And for some of us, it may seem irrelevant to say, um, you know, because we feel that we already know God. But the question is, how can you completely or fully know God when the Bible says something? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter that many, um, Minister Wong was quoting this morning in his prayer. But as we look at the, that, that chapter, we find something toward the latter portion of it. And, he, and, and Paul is communicating something. And he talks about us prophesying in part. And then he says something else. He says, we prophesy in part. And he says, and we know in part. And he says, but then we will be, we will, we will know as we are known. What is he talking about? He's talking about the complete and accurate, full knowledge of God. See, right now we see through a mirror dimly. We don't have the full revelation of God. We don't have the complete revelation of him. And when I say that, I'm not talking about scriptural revelation. Hello, somebody. I'm not talking like we add to the revelation. All of our revelation or illumination that we get from God must be rooted in the word of God. If there is any revelation of God that, that, that contradicts the scriptures, you have a bad revelation. Hello. If there's any scripture that you cannot support in, or if there's any revelation or knowledge or anything that you cannot support scripturally, then you have issues because God gave this to us for a reason so we could check any revelation so we could test every spirit. I'm just saying it's important that we realize this. But the fact of the matter is Paul is praying for these people that they would have this correct, precise, accurate knowledge of God because even though they were already believers, even though they had already experienced saving faith, even though they had some knowledge, Knowledge of God, their knowledge of God was not complete. And so we want to be those same type of people. The Apostle Paul is praying for believers who already have faith in Jesus and already have a, have a knowledge of who God is, that God would reveal himself to them more and continuously. I remember when I first, my first year in Bible college, we had to read eight books and do eight book reports. And one of the books that we had to read was a book by J.I. Packer, and it's called Knowing God. And I will never forget when I read this book, as I read it, I came to the end of the book, and I want to tell you, I didn't, I didn't like get saved and then the next day go to Bible college. I had been a Christian for a few years, right? And so I had been working, you know, working with the youth in the church. I was teaching the Bible. I was teaching doctrine. I knew Jesus in the sense that I had a relationship with him. But when I read this book by J.I. Packer, and again, I say just like I said the other day about whatever happened to the gospel, I don't hold J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, to the equal place of scripture. But what I can tell you is this, is that when I finished reading the book and I put it down, I was like, man. I don't know God. I was like, and it wasn't like a condemning, like, oh my goodness, I don't know God. It was a humble, a, a broken, like, man, Lord, I, there's so much to you that is so beyond the fullness of my grasp. And so for years of my life as a Christian, to this day, I mean, that was like almost 17 years ago. And I continue to pray. I, I wouldn't say every day, but at least once a week. Hello. I pray, God, I want to know you. And what am I saying? That I don't know you? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I don't have complete knowledge of you. I don't have complete revelation of you. And so that should be the heart. If the apostle Paul is praying this for us, then that should also be our heart for ourselves, wouldn't you say? 
That we wouldn't limit ourselves to think, well, I already have knowledge of God. I already have precise, because in some areas, I have a precise and accurate knowledge of God. Like, I know that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. That's precise, accurate knowledge of who God is. That's I understand that. God lets me know some things that are precise and accurate about his will. And so I can know those things, but can I continue to grow in the revelation of who he is? Can I continue to grow in the understanding of his heart and his mind and his will? And so the answer is yes, we can do that. And so we should have that heart that is humbled. There should always be that that desire to know more of him. But I want to say this. Don't just pray a prayer and say, God, I want to know you, and then just stand there still like, okay, well, I want to know you, so show me yourself. You need to open up your Bible and spend time in the presence of God meditating upon his word so you can get to know him better. I love to look at the book of Revelation. Why? Because it shows us so much of the, of the picture, of the landscape of heaven. It gives us revelation of who God is. I love Isaiah chapter 6 because when you look at Isaiah chapter 6 and he has this picture of God being enthroned and you can see some things about God and you can meditate upon those truths about him. And it's important that if we want to know him more that we dig into these scriptures by which he will help us to know him through the revelation of his Holy Spirit. Amen? The second thing that I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must seek to understand the magnitude of this prayer. And let's look at verses 18 to verse 20. It says this, and so he prays in verse 17. He starts this prayer off. He lets us know that he is praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. And then he goes on in verse 18 to expound on exactly what he means here. And he says that the eyes of your understanding, and so that word understanding is also translated as the word heart. So just remember that. That the eyes of your understanding of your heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places And so Paul prays for some specific things. The first thing he does, he prays that as your heart or as your understanding is being enlightened. When you think of the word enlightened, just think that this is what the word means. It means to give light or to illuminate. In other words, it's like, you know, you're in a place, it's not fully illuminated, and what is Paul praying? He's praying that your knowledge of God would be illuminated by who? By his spirit. That, that our knowledge of God would be that we would be enlightened, that our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know. That word know is the word. It's a different word for knowledge. It is not epignosis. It's the word oida, and it means to see or to perceive clear and purely mental perception. And so God wants us to have some ability to perceive these things, to know these things that he's communicating that, that, that we're going to talk about in a moment. And, and what he wants us to know specifically is our hope, his riches, and his power. And hear this. Christians need the spirit spiritual enlightenment or need to be spiritually enlightened so that they may understand the hope of God's calling, the riches of their inheritance in Christ, and the greatness of God's power toward us. This doesn't just happen all by ourselves. It doesn't just happen because we know how to read or we know how to study. It is not like that. It has to be something that the Spirit of God is doing, that God illuminates us and lets us know some things about him. The word heart or the word understanding in the New Testament term, it refers to the central disposition. I'm I'm, I'm quoting R.C. Sproul here. It refers to the central disposition, the inclination, the bent, or the proclivity of the human soul. In simple terms, it means bias. And here's the thing. Everybody in this place has bias and prejudices. Everyone does. 
Some of us have those things because we were raised a certain way and we thought and we were taught certain things about certain people, maybe certain people groups. We just have certain biases that are within us. We or, or some of our biases are because of experience. You know, you hear some of those biases, you know, like all men are, I won't add there, I'm just saying, you know the biases, right? <laughs> all women are, you know, all Christians are, those are biases, those are, those are things, all pastors are, all, you know, all the, those, those are biases, those are prejudices that we have within our heart. And what Paul is saying is that our hearts need to be illuminated. Our hearts need to be liberated from biases that limit us in our knowledge of who God is. Are you hearing me? Our hearts need to be expanded. And when I say expanded, I don't mean expanded like beyond the scriptures or expanded beyond, you know, correct and sound doctrinal teaching. I'm talking about our hearts need to be expanded beyond where we are limited at. Our hearts need to be expanded so we can really gain greater knowledge and greater understanding of the things that will let us know our God, our Savior, and our Lord better. And so what God desires is that our hearts be, a, be in a constant state of transformation as we are illuminated to the truths of the gospel. That is God's desire for our heart, is that our hearts are in a constant state of transformation, that we are continually being changed by the revelation of who God is, that as we sit down in the word of God, as we sit down in these scriptures, as we sit in prayer and we worship and adore our king, that God will continue to open our eyes spiritually, will continue to reveal himself more and more to us. That's his will for us. He wants us to know a few things, and there's three specific things that should be evident in our knowledge of God and understanding of the gospel. And so here's, here's what I want you to get. What I want you to understand is that God is not saying, hey, man, I just want you to know me, and however you want to figure that out. No, God is awesome to us in the way that he gives us some ways to be able to check ourselves. Hey, man, do I have this knowledge of God? Do I have this understanding of God in these particular areas? And so the first one is this, and I said it already, but what is the hope of our calling in Christ. That's the first thing, that when we have this correct knowledge of the scriptures and this correct knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, this correct knowledge of God, this precise knowledge of God, we will understand the hope of our calling. The second thing that we'll understand is the riches of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of his inheritance in the saints. So we will understand the hope of our calling and we will understand the riches of, our, of his inheritance in the saints. And the third thing is that we will understand or we will know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. So the first thing, again, what is the hope of his calling? That's the first thing that he says here that when, when he's going through this list of things that he wants us to know in verse 18. So he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So the first thing we talk about hope, what does that mean? It means joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. That's what hope is. It is joyful in the context of scripture here. It is joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. So the first question is, do you live with a joyful and confident expectation in eternal salvation? To know the hope of your calling, to know the hope that we have been called to, we have to know, we have to experience this joy. Our confidence or our hope is to be in the one who called us, not in the calling alone. Hear me when I say that. It is not just in the calling, but it is, it is in the one who called. When you look at the book of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9, it talks about our hope being what? Being an anchor. 
for us. And so what does an anchor do? What an anchor does is when you're, when you're in the ocean, you're in the water, and the waves are rough and all of that, what happens is this anchor goes through all of that roughness, and it finds the solid place, and that way the boat is what? Secured. And it's the same thing in our lives, and in, 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 in the waves, and the torrent, and the torrents of life, and those scenarios, what God does is he gives us a call, and he calls us to salvation, he calls us to relationship, and he becomes the anchor by which we stand. And so no matter what's going on, no matter how, how the waves are rumbling, no matter what is sounding, we have a solidity in what? In Jesus we have a solidity in the hope of our calling. And so we live this way because we're talking about walking worthy, which is the title of our series here. We're talking about walking worthy. And how do we walk worthy? It is because I live out of this joy and this expectation of eternal salvation. I live this out in Jesus. I love the Apostle Peter because he communicates to us that our hope is what? That our hope is a hope that is living. We have a living hope, not a dead hope. We have a living hope. We have a constant hope. We have an unfading hope. That's the hope that we're supposed to have. And as we grow, we start to live for what? We start to live for that hope, not just for today. See, one of the greatest evidence for me or for anyone it should be is when someone says, I really hope for tomorrow, look at how they live today. Think about that for a moment. When you really believe something about tomorrow, you live, you live differently today. When you, when you really believe something about tomorrow, that you, you, you live, if someone told you you were going to die tomorrow, I guarantee you, you'd live differently today. The clothes you had to wash, you wouldn't be worried about those. All of those chores you had to do, if you really believe you were dying tomorrow, you would live differently. That's all I'm saying. And so the truth is, when we really have hope in Christ eternally for salvation, guess what? We live our lives differently. Second thing that he shows us is the riches of his inheritance. Now, look at what it says here. He says this. He says that you would know what is the hope of his calling, the one who calls us. And then the second thing is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, I want you to notice something. Earlier on in chapter 1, we talked about our inheritance. Say our inheritance. Notice what this scripture says here. It doesn't say our inheritance it says his inheritance. Now think about that for a moment because God is, God is talking about his inheritance. And let me ask you this. How many of you, if you knew you were going to get an inheritance that was worth something, you would be excited? Come on, show your hand. Just show your hand. If you'd be excited, like, hey, man, you know, I mean, you wouldn't want the person to die who was going to hook you up with the inheritance. But once they're dead, glory to God, they're with the Lord, amen, and so we're going to rejoice in the inheritance. I'm just saying, so we look forward to some stuff, right? And so, do you know, I mean, think about, I, I need you to get this because this is so important for me, that you understand that when he's communicating, he is talking about his inheritance. So what that would tell me is that God probably gets excited about his inheritance. You think so? You, you, you think that God is excited about his inheritance? You think, I mean, here, 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 is, here is what you have to understand. God has deposited his inheritance where? In us. Oh, y'all, you, you, I don't know if you hear me. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor. You are his inheritance. Now, if you're, now, now listen. I'm not going to tell you to ask them this, but I'm going to ask you the question. Now, just make sure that you're a believer, because if you're not a believer, you're not an inheritance yet. Hello. Are you hearing me? 
All right, so if you are a believer in Jesus, you are this glory, the riches of his inheritance. He is excited about you. I need you to get that. And, and, and it, it is not because, listen, I say this all the time. It is not because we are so great. It is because he is so great. And what he does is he pours into us this glory in what? In jars of clay, in vessels that are earthly. That is us. But he pours these riches in us. He makes, he makes something big of us. Are you hearing me? See, all of us when we are born, every one of us, while we are born into sin on one side, we are also born with this thing called the imago Dei. You've heard that word before. The image of God. And so while we are born into sin, we are also born with this image of God that is totally distorted because of our sin nature. But when we come to Christ, what he does is he redeems this Imago Dei. He redeems his image in us. And what he wants us to realize is that we are his inheritance. We are. He, he wants it. Look, and, and can, can I tell you something? If you knew somebody that was really going to hook you up with an inheritance, how would you treat them? You'd probably call them once in a while, wouldn't you? You'd probably go see them once in a while, wouldn't you? It wouldn't be like that cousin that, you know, they just broke, busted, and disgusted over there, right? And, you know, you, you don't even call them because you're afraid they're going to ask you for something. Hello. I'm just saying, we'll just leave it like that, right? But what I'm saying is if you knew someone was going to hook you up, I think that you would be excited about that, right? And you would treat that person differently. Church, if you are a believer in Jesus, he is invested in you. He is visiting with you. He wants relationship with you. He is making you more and more like him every day, every encounter, every time you're in the scriptures. He is making you more like him. Why? Because he is going to present you before himself faultless, blameless, without wrinkle, without spot. That's what he's doing because you are his inheritance. That is our identity. We are his inheritance, his saints. That's who we are in him. And he wants us to know the hope of our calling that is secured in him. He wants us to have this anchor in our faith, but he also wants us to know that you and I are his inheritance, that God shows us. This is what this teaches us. This teaches us of our value. When he says these things, he is showing us our value in God's eyes. You know what God does when he saves us? He gives us this amazing value. And he shows us that he values us because he calls us his inheritance. The third thing that he wants us to grow in the knowledge of is that we would have an understanding in verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working. So I want you to, I want you to if, you have, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can write there. If you mind writing, you might want to write this down in your notes, okay? But here's what it is. In verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? That word power is one Greek word. I'm going to give you that definition in a moment. And then toward us who believe according to the working, that is another word for power of his mighty power. That's another word for power. There's all four different words, which he worked in Christ. That's another word there worked when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so the apostle Paul uses four words describing God's power that is active in all believers. Say all believers. Everyone who calls himself a believer, everyone who calls himself a Christian, if, you are, if, if you're a Christian, then this power is operative in your life. And so the first word that is used there is the word dunamis. Say dunamis. 
You guys know this one. It is D-U-N-A-M-I-S, dunamis. And that is where we get our English word dynamite, right? And what that word dunamis means, it means power, natural ability. It means it, it general and inherent power. And so we know that the apostles were told to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with what? Power. That word power there in, in Acts chapter 1 is what? Dunamis. Okay, so they needed this power of the Holy Spirit. So that power we know because of the book of Acts is operative in the lives of believers. And so the next word that he uses here that is working, it is the word energia. Say energia. And that word, it sounds like energy. As a matter of fact, when I typed it in, you know, as, as I was typing it in, in Word document, you know how the little line comes under it so you can correct the spelling? You know what word it wanted to spell? Energy. That's what it wants to spell because that's where we get the, the, the Greek word energia is the word that we get there. And so it's spelled like energy, except instead of a Y, it's an E-I-A. So it's E-N-E-R-G-E-I-A. And so what that means is it means working, power and exercise. It means operative power. It is superhuman power that is operating within each and every one of us, right? Okay, so we have dunabis and we have energia. Now these two words, I haven't, I haven't said them I don't, I very much, if at all. And so the next two words, the first one is iskus. Say iskus. It is I-S-C-H-U-S. Iskus. And that word means strength or power. It means an endowment. And so you have the dynamite power, you have the energy that is moving by the power of the Spirit in your life, and then you have this strength or this power or this endowment that God gives us through His Spirit again. And then the last word there is the word kratos. Say kratos. And it's K-R-A-T-O-S. And that word means might, relative, and manifested power. And in the New Testament, it's chiefly dealing with God. So why did I go through all these definitions that you probably were not able to write down all of them? I'm sure you weren't because I talk fast. Hello. But why did I go through all of this? Because I want you to get a point. And the point is that it should be abundantly clear to us that we have been empowered by God to walk worthy of his calling. Listen, even on your worst day, in your weakest moment, you must maintain an understanding in faith of the magnitude and the above and beyond supernatural power that raised Jesus from the dead is operative in your life. This is something that we have got to get and it has to be something that is burning inside of us continually or else we will walk around with our heads down we will walk around feeling as though we are defeated and listen what we have to realize is this power is working every day always accessible to our lives and that same power that raised Jesus think about that for a moment that is the power Jesus was dead he was beaten brutally crucified gives up his spirit the, the, the spirit comes to his side making sure that we understand that he was dead as dead gets. He laid in a grave in a tomb for three days. Three days, y'all. And God, by his power, by his dunamis, by his energia, by his iskus, by his kratos, all of those things combined raise Jesus from the dead. And God says, that power is operating in you. That power is, see, when you know God, you understand that power. 
And even, even when you have a weak moment, even when you feel, man, this is so horrible, even when depression tries to enter, whatever may be coming against you, you realize, listen, and this is why the Bible says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to know what is that acceptable and good and perfect will of God. And look, the will of God is for us to depend on what? This hope. We live from this place of hope, that we live understanding that we are his inheritance and that we live under what? The power that is operative in our lives. That we be those type of people and that we live the way. That is how we, that, that is how, that is the revelation that God wants us to get. And as we get to know God better, our hearts being enlightened by the truths of his revelation, these truths should not only become clearer to us, but they should become more evident in us. See, it's not just about getting some knowledge up here like I understand something better, but it's about having a knowledge that transforms, and I'll repeat this in a little bit. It's having a knowledge that transforms your life so that way your life reflects the knowledge you've gained. Amen. That's the knowledge that God is talking about that he wants us to have of, him, of himself. The third thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must live our lives from the truth of this prayer. We must live our lives from the truth of this prayer. So it's not just knowing what the, what, what the apostle Paul prayed, but it's living our lives from a position. It's living our life from a place of faith. It is living the way that God calls us to live. Understanding, looking at verse 21 to verse 23, it says this. It says, far above all principalities and power. I'm going to read, let's go back to verse 20 so it flows together more nicely. Which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the security we have as believers. And the apostle Paul gives us some clear truths about the one who is our advocate and to whom we have made allegiance. And so when you came to faith in Jesus, if you came to faith in him, you realize your need for him. You realize that he died for your sins so that way you would not have to suffer eternal judgment, okay? And you came to a place to realize that you could not save yourself, that your good works were not good enough, and that you had a death problem. When you came to that realization of the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus made, and if you haven't come to that realization, please know that every one of us is born with that sin problem, that death problem. We are breakers of God's law. We violate his laws, and because of that, God has to judge sin, and we will experience that judgment. But the beauty of the gospel is not just the bad news, but it is the good news, and it is that Jesus comes onto the scene. He lives a perfect life dealing with our good works issue. He, he dies in our place dealing with our death, death issue, resurrecting. He dies dealing with our sin issue, resurrecting, and he deals with our death problem. And what does he do? He wants you to become his inheritance. He wants you to become that person who has a hope, not that walks around not sure, but a person who has a hope in him who has called you. A hope that he is able to keep us. And so he wants us to realize those things. But when we came to faith in him, what we did was we made an allegiance with Jesus. 
We didn't just say, okay, I want to be part of a religion. We made allegiance with a Savior, with a God, with a Lord. We made an alignment with him. And when we did that, we need to understand who it is that we made allegiance with, who it is we made allegiance to. And so he shows us clearly. He says these things. He says what? He says he seated him in heavenly places. And so that power that is operative in you is the same power that raises Jesus to heavenly places, right? Remember we talked about that last week, those heavenly places where everything is secured in him a place where moth doesn't go, rust doesn't go, where nothing can destroy the inheritance that is for us. And so he is seated in those places. He's the one who secures this. And it goes on to say, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And so all of those words there in Jewish culture all dealt with spiritual beings. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is enthroned in the heavenlies above every principality, above every power. What does that mean for us? That means that the one that we entrusted our life to is not subject to power, but power is subject to him. He's the one that keeps us. We don't worry about those things because those things are under his feet. It goes on and it continues to say above all power. And then it says in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And so obviously we go from the spirit realm to names, hello, in this age and in the age to come. So he's communicating every name. So that means every king, every president, every whoever. Guess what? Jesus' name is to the name above all names. There is no name greater. And so he communicates this to us, lets us know this. And then he says that lastly, if if we didn't get the picture already, he makes it very clear. And he says, and he put all things, say all things, things. under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And so what this says to us clearly is that Jesus has this supreme authority spiritually. He has this supreme authority naturally. He has everything has been put under his feet, but not only in this world, but also in the church. See, Jesus is given, and understand this, Jesus is given to us. He gave him. Say gave him. You give a gift. And what we need to realize is that Jesus was given to the church as a gift. Because he's the leader of the church. In the vision carrier class, I try to make this as clear as possible. I am not the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is. Do I wrestle with Jesus about that? Absolutely. But here's the thing. He wins all the time. He's he's the winner because I'm not strong enough, right? I'm just saying, right? And sometimes I forget that he's the senior pastor. All of those things occur. And so any person who's a a leader naturally is going to forget that sometimes and they're going to want to lead. If you're the kind of person, I mean, just think about it this way within your marriage. If you're the type of person that, you know, you like to, you're you're, you're the one who comes up with solutions, right? You know, let's just say you're the husband typically, not always, but sometimes the husband is is the problem solver, right? He's the one that always wants to solve it. It's not that he always has the best solution. Hello, ladies. I didn't say that, but he has, he's a problem solver. So when you come to him, he's always thinking like, okay, how do I fix this? What do we need to do about this? And you're like, I didn't want you to tell me how to fix it. I just wanted you to just listen. Hello. Right? I'm just saying I would have figured all that. But the point is when you are that problem solver in your mind, what do you do? Automatically you go into problem solving mode. The first thing in your head, and listen, you're lying to yourself if you don't say this is true. The first thing in your head is not, let's go pray about it. The first thing in your head is how do we fix it? Right? Like, how do I? See, the problem solver is like, yep, amen, glory to God. I'm just saying. Now, you should discipline yourself, and you can discipline yourself to grow in that place where when your inclination is, how do we fix it? Let's pray about this first. 
right? Let, let, let me submit my dependence and my reliance on Jesus, not my own wisdom, right? And so you can renew your mind and get to that place, and it's still going to be a struggle. That's the bottom line. But here is the thing, that we need to realize this, that God gives us this gift, this amazing senior pastor. You know why it's so amazing that he is the one that's a senior pastor of the church? Because I don't sit above principalities. He does. He's not battling with principalities. Are you hearing me? He's not, he's not worrying about municipalities. He's not, he's not, oh my goodness. He's none of that stuff. Jesus is enthroned. So that's who you want to be your leader. I'm just saying, amen. That's the one you want to have allegiance to because he's far above all that stuff where every man is beneath that stuff and we submit to him and depend on his power to operate in us. But Jesus has given to us as a gift. And so he says something, and this is where we're, we're going to get ready to close here. But he says this. He says, and he gives, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And so look, when we look at this, him filling all in all, this is what this means, that we are his body. That means we collectively are not just part of the church, but we are literally, and hear me when I say this, and mystically part of his body. When I say mystically, I don't mean like, you know, mysticism. That's not what I'm saying. It's that how can you and I sit in this place and while we're sitting here and we don't look connected physically, but we are not just spiritually connected to one another, but we are spiritually part of his body. Do you, do you fully grasp that? I don't fully grasp that. But I believe it by faith that I am unified with Christ according to what the scriptures say, that we are part of his body. And so as I was reading and I, and I saw this, and listen, just stick with me. This is going to be a long like definition, and there's a lot that's going to be said here, and I will try to break it up as best I can. But the idea is that the church is not only Christ's body, but that which is filled by him. In Colossians chapter 1, you don't have to turn here, but in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, and in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, it speaks about the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Christ, in, in Christ Jesus bodily. And so what that was saying in Colossians is that all of the Godhead dwelt in Christ, that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. The actual word in the Greek is pleroma, and that word is, is talking about this fullness or the plenitude of the Godhead, the very fullness of the Godhead, the totality of the divine powers and qualities is said to be recognized as framer and governor of the world. And there is neither need nor place for any intermediate being as agents in those works of creating, upholding, and administering. Now listen, what he's saying is that there was no need for anyone else to try to add to the Godhead. It was just Jesus, the fullness of God, dwells in him. Here in the book of Ephesians, it's just trying to give us a picture of what he was saying. He was saying all of the authority of God dwell in Christ bodily. So when you look at this, it's the same word here when it says he fills all in all, the fullness of him, the pleroma of him fills all in all. So every one of us is filled. The, con the conception is that this plenitude of the divine power and qualities which is in Christ is imparted to him by his church or, or imparted by him to his church. And so that fullness of God that dwelt in Christ bodily is now manifesting fully within the church that through Christ, 
we experience the fullness of God manifesting within our lives. And this is the purpose so that the latter being the church is pervaded by his presence, animated by his life, filled with his gifts and energies and graces. And so what happens is God wants us to realize that that fullness that dwelt in Christ bodily is dwelling within Christ's body, which is us. And we are animated. We are brought to life. We are given graces and gifts. By whom? By Jesus. It is him that is manifesting. And so what happens is he fills us. And so he is the sole head of the universe, obviously, which is supplied by him with all that is needed for its being and its order. And so who's the one that keeps everything in control? Is it not God himself? It is him who controls everything. All things are subject to him. He is not only the leader of creation, but he is also the sole head of the church, which receives from him what he himself possesses. And so that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same fullness that was in Jesus bodily is now where it is evident and manifested in the church. And he himself possesses and is endowed by him with all that it requires for the realization of its vocation. Here's the bottom line, church. Anything that we do for the glory and honor of Jesus is only because of the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is because of the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is because he fills every gap. He fills every need. And you know how he does it? He does it through his body. Literally, us, his body. It's beyond our understanding. But that's the reason why we have to make sure that we are those who are growing in the knowledge of who God is. The knowledge of who he is and the knowledge of what he's done. And so my closing questions for you are twofold. And one is, do you know God? That's the first question. Do you know him? If you don't know him, he died for you so that way you could come to know him. The second question is, because most of you in this place are believers, is are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you getting to know your God better continuously? And how can we better answer these questions? The first question that, that would help us undergird and understand these, these two most important questions is, do you know the hope to which you were called? If you don't know the hope, then there's a question of you really knowing God, because when you know God, you know hope. You know the hope to which you were called. The second question is, do you understand the value that God has placed upon you as his saints? If you're not sure, he wants to make you sure. The third question is, are you aware of the power that is at work within your life? You see, to know God is to have his hope. To know God is to know your value. And to know God is to know his power. But here's what I said earlier. Not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. Experiential knowledge. Knowledge that alters your walk from a manner that is unworthy of the name of Jesus to a manner in which you walk worthy of his calling upon you. The bottom line is this, is you need to know God and be continually being enlightened by his spirit in order to walk worthy of him. And this is the beauty of it, is that he makes us worthy positionally and progressively. What he does is he offers salvation to anyone who doesn't know him. If you don't know him today, he wants to make you stand right before him. He wants to make you have a right relationship with him. That's the reason why Jesus died. But he doesn't want to just do it one time. He wants to progressively make you more 
and more like him. So that way your position begins to reflect what? Your progression. That way you start to look more like who you are already in him. Stand to your feet and bow your heads, please.